Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy Church. My name is Joey Schwartz. We're beginning or continuing our series, Live Well. We're walking through uh, the book of Proverbs. And this week, we're covering an ancient problem that is especially relevant for this day and age. Uh, In 2017, Sean Parker, he's a co-founder of Facebook. You might know him by, he was played by Justin Timberlake in The Social Network, which is like the peak of accomplishment. And in 2017, he was being interviewed about the founding of Facebook. And he said, as we were considering uh, founding Facebook, we thought about how can we consume as much of people's attention as possible. And he said that to do this, we had to, and I quote, exploit a vulnerability in human psychology. You see, as they were dreaming up Facebook, they had this really genius idea that if they were able to, every single time someone logged on, to give them a dopamine hit, a notification, to make them feel wanted but also to have a wall where people's highlight reels were being displayed so that they could have a sense of wanting more. In this kind of tension of being wanted and wanting more, they could, as he said, consume as much of their attention as possible. Now, if you're a a longtime Facebook user, of course, this probably does and should make you feel a little bit uneasy. But the thing is that Facebook is actually not the real culprit. See, there's something deeper. Even Sean Parker himself says that they were just exploiting what was already a vulnerability in human psychology. You see, there's something hardwired within humans. There's something that makes us want to be not just good, but as good as someone else that doesn't just find wellness in our own well-being, but being as well as someone else. And you know what it is? It's envy. It's envy. See, Aristotle defined it as pain over others' good fortune. Really simply. And the Bible says that this heart of envy goes back all the way to the beginning of sin. You know it. You know it when you are totally satisfied about your house and about your family until you see an Instagram picture of a pristine house that's cleaned up, and then you see at church a family that's really put together. And all of a sudden, when you were happy about your house and family, now you feel like your house is a mess, and your family is too. You see, that's envy. Envy is there when everything else is going well in your life. The Lord has provided, he sustained you, he strengthened you, but because you're still single, because you're still waiting in that one area, you can't rest, you can't be content. You're looking around at everyone else enjoying relationships and you sense that deep burn of envy. 
You see, envy drives us in our insecurity. It's at the heart of so much of what we do. And maybe you're thinking, hey, I'm not even really envious, to be honest. I'm actually quite happy with my work, with my health, with my home. Well, first of all, praise God. That's amazing. But I want you to at least consider what Ecclesiastes 4.4 says. It says that all toil and all skill in work is driven by a man's envy of his neighbor. See, it's not just envy that makes us uh, covet an Instagram picture of a pristine kitchen. Sometimes, sometimes it's envy that makes us post it. So it's not just envy that makes us jealous of those who have that promotion. Sometimes envy is what's making us stay late at work. See, sometimes envy is felt in our insecurity, but sometimes envy comes through such a fear of inferiority that we spend ourselves to make sure that we're superior. See, envy is not just behind so many of our emotions, it's behind the motivations of so much that we do. So, in all, we look at Facebook, right? And what we can say in the Facebook experiment that Sean Parker put forth is that it kind of worked, right? They went out on a venture believing that if they could put forth a platform that was founded on envy and it work, and after about a third of humans on earth on the platform, I think we could say that Sean Parker's hypothesis was true. There is a vulnerability. And King Solomon agrees as well. You see, in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, he's going to show us what's behind our heart of envy, but he's also going to point us forward toward a better way. It is Proverbs 14, verse 30. You heard that right. It's one verse. That's all we're doing this morning. But it's a verse that the scripture expounds upon from beginning to end. So I'm going to read this verse, and then we're going to let God himself give us a commentary. Proverbs 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Let me say that again. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. There is a a, a tool or a literary device that's often used in ancient Proverbs called parallelism. And often, most, often it's comparing things that are alike, but it can also compare things that are not alike. And you will see this time and time again as you read through the Proverbs. So, for example, it'll say, the righteous man is like this, and then the wicked man is like this, or the wise do this, and fools do this, diligent people do this, lazy people do this. You get the point, right? So what Solomon is saying is that an envious heart rots the bones, An envious heart rots the bones. Now, we all know this, right? No one, no one rolls out of bed, grabs their phone, and spends 30 minutes scrolling through their friend's vacation on the Grand Canyon and just says, Mmm, I am ready to start my day. I am am satisfied. We, We know that envy rots the bones. Whenever we indulge in it, it makes us feel sicker. It brings us down, right? But remember, parallelism. 
What does Solomon say is on the other side of envy? He's pointing two paths, one toward envy and another path going the other way. Well, we might expect him to say self-esteem. You know, envy makes the bones rot, but self-esteem strengthens the soul. But that's not what he says. You might expect him to say prosperity. Envy makes the bones rot, but prosperity leads to peace. But that's not what he says either. He says Envy makes the bones rot, and a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. See, we're so tempted to believe that our envy will end as soon as we get the thing that we envy. Our jealousy is going to end as soon as we become like the person we're jealous of. But what Solomon is saying here is that it's not that the fulfillment of our envious desires will soothe our heart. It's that the fulfillment of our heart will soothe our envious desires. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. Envy makes the bone, the bones rot. See, this is our main point this morning. The cure for envy is not changing places, but changing posture. The cure for envy is not changing places, but changing posture. Not becoming like the person you're envying, but something happening down here in your heart. And when your posture is changed, your envy is healed. That's where the cure comes from. So we're going to be going down two paths this morning. One, down the path of, uh, of refreshment, and the other down the path of resentment. And I really believe that this morning, because, because envy is not healed by a change in our conditions or our circumstances or by changing places, but envy is all about the condition of the heart because it's about changing our posture, that healing, if this is you this morning, healing is possible for you today. But it's obviously not easy. How many of you have asked someone lately how they're doing and they said, you know what, I'm just having a tranquil week. I'm having a totally tranquil week. It's uncommon, and that's because we have to fight toward it. There's something within us that is warring against this tranquility. So I'm going to give you three steps, three steps down the path of resentment and three steps down the path of refreshment. Let's start with the path of resentment. The first step in the path of resentment is focus on what you lack. Focus on what you lack. If you want to take steps toward envy and the rotting of the bones, just focus on what you lack. Now, why do we do this? We do it because this is hardwired within our sinful nature. It goes back all the way to the beginning of Genesis. See, God made this entire world, and he set two humans on it. They literally had the whole world, and they had no sin And in Genesis 2, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the world, and subdue it. They had everything. Like, stop and imagine this. I know we hear, some of you guys have heard the Genesis story a bunch. There was no sin. Like, there was nothing to be stressed about. They didn't even have anybody to change places with. They didn't even have anything to envy or covet because the whole world was theirs. And yet, God said in Genesis 2, you may surely eat of every tree, have it, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat because it's for your good. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what happens in Genesis 3? What happens in Genesis 3? Though they had everything before them and nothing to covet, 
Everything before them, they focused on the one thing that they lacked. They reached out for the one forbidden fruit. And this is how we know it's not about a change in place, it's about a change in posture because they didn't have anything to change with in their place. Again, what, what we see there is that it, it starts down there. It's not about being the best because Adam and Eve were the best. <laughs> they were the only, but there was still something down there where they felt like they lacked. See, this is what happens when we focus on what we lack. So what happens when we focus on what we lack it gives us a tunnel vision on the one thing that we lack, and then it blinds us to everything else in the world that God has given us. It makes us see only the thing that we don't have yet, that they have, but we don't. This is within us. You see, if you want to go down this path of resentment, just start focusing on what you don't have yet. Now, this leads to craving what others have. This is the second step. Crave what others have. Crave what others have. Now, what happens is you start uh, focusing on the thing you lack, and because you're blinded to the glory of God and the goodness of God, you're going to go somewhere else to get it. You're going to go to people to find it. And because that person was not meant to satisfy you, and because you were not meant to become like them, you grow bitter. Instead of beholding God, you start beholding the person that you envy, and your heart grows bitter. And so what ends up happening is you end up finding reasons why they're really not as good as they ought to be. Contempt and competition is sown in your heart when you start to covet people. You start thinking, well, he does have that job, and I I wish I had that, but honestly, he probably doesn't deserve it. That family looks really happy, but probably they're a mess behind the scenes, right? I'm glad she has that relationship, but gosh, it's probably not going to end up working out. We end up stirring up imaginations in our heart because we crave what others have, and that leads to conflict. This is what James 4 says. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Here's what's happening here. When we, remember that tunnel vision? When we're blinded to the glory of God and all of his gifts, here's where our focus goes. We stop focusing on the limitless resources that we have from God, and we start focusing on the limited resources that we share with people so that their blessing becomes a hindrance to us. And it's irrational. In no way does others' well-being harm our own well-being, but then again, sin is irrational, right? We start thinking that their blessing is a hindrance and a competition to us. And because of that, we fight and we quarrel. Mercy family, I want to challenge you in particular. Is there anyone in your community group, is there anyone in the church who you've started to have feelings of bitterness against? Feelings of resentment against? Now think about it. Can you trace that resentment maybe to a place of envy? 
Maybe you said, I just can't be around them because she's, she's just show, so showy with her biblical knowledge. What if that's actually a sign that you're insecure about yours? What if you're saying, well, I can't be around that family because they just kind of flaunt their kids. Well, maybe that's a sign that you're insecure about your family. And I say this to you not to judge you not to condemn you, but to show you that all of this is not a consequence maybe of what others have done against you, but it's a consequence of turning your eyes away from God. There is an Eden forest before you. There are good gifts, but when we turn away from God's gifts and we focus on what we lack, we start resenting not just God, but we start resenting people. So you focus on what you lack, you crave what others have, and what this ends up leading to is you end up rejecting what God gives. The third step in the path of resentment is that you reject what God gives. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Put to death what is earthly within you, sexual immorality, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. See, Paul equates envy and covetousness with idolatry. Well, how so? Because in order to have a passion and a desire for what others have, we have to turn away from what God has. You see, in order to really have a zeal to become like someone else, we have to stop our zeal for becoming like God. See, in order to behold people and stare at them, either with our eyes or with our thoughts and meditations, we have to stop beholding God. We're becoming like them or trying to. We're beholding them or trying to all throughout the day. We want what they have. See, there's another word for this. It's worship. It's consuming our heart. It's consuming our mind. See, I've, uh, I know I'm kind of railing a little bit on social media here, but I genuinely feel like there are some good uses to social media, right? Like sometimes we will have a really good recipe that's like brand new that Kelly makes. And I'm like, where does that come from? Or we'll have like a, like a life hack in the home or whatever. I'm like, where did that come from? And like almost every time it's someone on Instagram gave this little pointer and it's blessed me. So I, I really think that social media in this way, it can be a tool for connection, right? I think it really can be a tool for connection. It can have some value. And besides that, it also can be vocational, right? If you're working in marketing or communication or branding, often that's part of your job. And that's good and fine. Praise God for that gift. But there is a difference. There is a difference between seeking social media as a tool for connection and seeking it as a fix for our heart. And that's different. And you can really tell this based on simply how much time are you spending on it. See, when we roll out of bed and we are constantly in the habit of just grabbing our phone and scrolling through Instagram, and that's how we start our day, we have to wonder who or what we're offering our bodies to as a living sacrifice in the morning. We have to wonder where we're getting our daily bread. Because when you wake up, you're hungry. Where does your soul go? If you're in the habit of grabbing that phone and that's what you're trying to satisfy, even though you know it never does, see, that's how idols work. We go back to them again and again, even though they don't satisfy. What are you worshiping? See, I think we need to watch what we're beholding. 
Because what we're beholding is what we're becoming. I, I, I talked about scoliosis. You know, we have different names for this issue. Oh, wait, I didn't talk about scoliosis. Let me, Pastor Spence mentioned scoliosis like three months ago in a sermon, so I'm assuming it's just lore and tradition within mercy. But let me bring it up. It should be common knowledge to you if you're listening on mercy, but let me bring it up. Something that I walked through college students with was uh, something I called Instagram scroliosis, right? So it's the, the temptation, right, to scroll through Instagram for so long that your neck and your heart hurt so bad. And you just stop as soon as you, you just realize, I just have nothing better to do, and I've been on this for like 45 minutes, so I've got to leave. So what I'm saying, I guess, after all of that, seek it as a tool for connection. Don't seek it as worship. Don't avoid Instagram scroliosis and use it to connect with people. So we can call it Instagram scoliosis, again. So we can call it uh, envy, right? I think a lot of times we talk about it like some people would talk about it in terms of, hey, I really struggle with comparison. And a lot of other people would say, I, you know, I've got this competitive spirit. But I want to be very clear here. When we're talking about this issue, this envious heart, the real name is not, you know, scoliosis. I like the name, but it's not the best name. The real name is not scoliosis. The real name is sin. Say so this is sin against God. When we envy, we have to turn our hearts away from God. And because of that, we are subject. We are subject to an eternal rotting of the bones. An eternity apart from the life of God in punishment. That's what the end of envy is. But praise God, that is not the end for those who are in Christ. You see, Christ came, and even though we wanted the good that others have and hated them, Jesus loved us by bearing the sin that we had. He didn't covet, he carried the cross. You see, he didn't get bitter, he bore our sins. Jesus paid the full penalty for all of our envying, all of our turning away from God. And it was his bones and not ours that was susceptible to rotting in the grave. And yet, Christ's bones did not rot. On the third day, by the glory of the Father, Jesus rose from the grave to newness of life, to refreshing resurrection life forever. And because he rose we know that there's a path out. There's a path out of resentment into refreshment. There's a path out of an eternal rotting into eternal life in Christ. This is what Christ has secured us. See, you want to know the path of refreshment? I could stop the sermon here and just say, it's Christ. He is the truth and the life and the way. He is the path to refreshment. And everything that we're going to say about how to find refreshment is simply this, that it's not about your circumstances. It's not about your condition. It's not about being better or as good. It's about being in Christ, believing in him, finding all your joy, all your satisfaction in him. And because he died for you and rose from the grave, you can this morning. Let's walk through the path of refreshment. And as I go through these three, I'm going to give you some really practical handles uh, because Proverbs is really practical. 
It's really helpful. And Jesus was really practical. So I, I don't want you just walking away from this saying, hey, I was encouraged by that or whatever. I want change in your heart. I want change from an envious heart into peace. The path of refreshment first, focus on what you have. Focus on what you have. I love this passage from 1 Corinthians 3. So Paul, he's dealing with an envious church. I mean, they're just boasting against one another. My spiritual gift's better than yours. My spiritual teacher is better than yours. They're envying one another in every way possible. And some are claiming, you know, I'm in Apollos' camp. I'm in Paul's camp. I'm in Cephas' camp. And they're, you know, posting, uh, they're not posting pictures, but they're, you know, they're just competing and provoking and envying one another. And this is what Paul says to, to shake them out of their envy. Verse 21, he says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is what Paul's doing. He's coming to this Corinthians church who has this tunnel vision on them, and he rips it off with an eternal vision of what they have in Christ, of all the glories and the riches and the treasures that they have in him. He's saying, focus on what you have. That's the first step in the path of refreshment. Focus on what you have. He's saying, you have Christ. You have him. Why would you care about having having Apollos? You have Jesus. You have him. Focus on what you have. And it's the same for us, right? It's the same for us. You are loved by the God of life. And yet you still want to be liked by people. You have heaven and earth, the new creation forever and ever and ever and ever. But you're bothered about a little bit of extra square footage that your neighbor has. You have Jesus, the Holy Spirit, power forever and ever and ever within your body. And one day, you're going to be radiating the glory of Christ. Your face will shine with forever and ever and ever glory. But you're worried about how you look compared to her. Do you remember what you already have in Christ. You see, we forget. We forget. And the more we forget, the more we go toward resentment because we forget that God is enough. We forget that he is generous. Say Colossians 3.15 says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which indeed you were called in one body. And then he says, and be thankful. You see how those two go together? Let peace rule and be thankful. The more we will focus on what we have, the more that we will enter into the refreshment. Because we'll remember, Christ is the living water. He's the endless well. We went to him once and he was enough to satisfy us and we can go back again. The more we give thanks, time and time and time again, the more we'll remember that God indeed is enough. A simple practice for this. Anne Voskamp wrote a book called 1,000 Gifts. It's a really good book to read. 
But the essence of it is that she wrote down 1,000 things that she was thankful for, gifts from God, and she just wrote them down. And when you get to 1,000, you're writing down like everything, the breeze and the spider that's on the you know, window pane or whatever. But that kind of practice, what it did, it constantly tapped her back into refreshment. She was constantly reminded that God was providing. He was providing for that spider, he provided for her. I, I don't know why we wouldn't do this. <laughs> like, we spend so much of our time doing other things. Why don't we just spend three minutes a day writing down three things we're thankful for? I mean, a couple options. I'm going to get really practical. Like, put a notebook next to your bed on the nightstand and just get in the habit. Before you go to bed, write that down. Have a, or, or have like a, a board on your wall with your roommates, your spouse, or family, and just make it a goal. We're going to put sticky notes, what we're thankful for, and we want to see by December or by May, you know, can we put a thousand things on the wall? What if you just did that? Just make a constant rem- memorial of the goodness of God. Let that peace rule in your heart, that refreshment, by being thankful. That's the first. Focus on what you have. And second, crave what Christ has. Crave what Christ has. This is what Colossians 3 says. It says, if then you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things that are above. Seek the things that are above. See, you've been raised with him. Christ has risen you out of the grave of rotting and resentment. So seek the things that are above. Start to crave what Christ has. Remember, we talked about beholding. And how by beholding, we end up becoming like what we're beholding and how that corrupts us if we're envying others. But how it works with Christ is actually the opposite. The more that we behold Christ, the more we taste and see that he's good and want to behold him more. The more we behold him, the more we actually become like him. You see, you should be seeking the things that are above. And maybe it's that you haven't actually tasted the goodness of things above. Like, here's an example. Paul talks to these boasting Corinthians, and he's saying, don't, you know, debate over what your teacher is and kind of who you were baptized by or whatever, right? Well, what he actually ends up setting them on in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Earnestly desire all that the Holy Spirit has for you. I think a lot of times we are content in the wrong way in Christ. There's a good way of being content in Christ, that Christ is all that I need, but we should also simultaneously, knowing that Christ is able to satisfy our heart, we should have a holy discontent because we long for more of him. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. Not that I've already obtained this. I haven't had all that Christ has for me, but I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on for more of Christ. There's more to be had of him. You can have more intimacy with Jesus. You can have more of the power of the Holy Spirit by grace. You can have more joy in Christ. You can have more peace. We can have more spiritual fruit. And I think if we kind of realign our taste buds by the grace of Christ, by the renewal of our minds, we'll end up seeking what Christ has for us. It's all about beholding and becoming. Here's a practical way to crave what Christ has for you. Put your phone to bed at nine o'clock at night. I'm just gonna give you some hours. If it's different for you, do it. But put your phone to bed at nine o'clock. Turn it off and put it in the shelf. 
And end your day with that thanksgiving. End your day with refreshment by remembering who satisfies you. And then when you wake up, keep that phone in its you know, little nook or in the corner or in a drawer or whatever. Keep it in until 9 a.m. From 9 to 9, just keep that thing away so that when you wake up, you're not tempted. Those images are really bright. Like iPhones are really colorful and they have a lot of sound. It's really hard to avoid them if they're right next to you. So put it away. And it's okay to check things from time to time. But no, when you wake up, you need Jesus. You need to behold him in the word and you need to behold him in prayer. If you want resources about how to meet with Jesus, you can go to thegospelwheel.com. We have some resources on how you can practice devotion and meet with him every day. And and by the way, we're practicing this right now in our community groups. I'm the group's pastor, so I got to make a group's plug. We're practicing this right now. So maybe part of this is you need to be, you need to stop pretending like you can walk with Christ alone and you need to dive into community and let others help you meet with God every day. Because there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out none of us are perfect, none of us are strong enough. We need one another to join a community group and learn how to behold God in the word and prayer every single day. That's what we need to do. So we got the thank you sticky notes, the thank you journaling, meet with God in the morning, meet with him at night, train your soul. I need most of all the things that are above, the things that Christ gives. That's it. The third step in the path of refreshment, reflect what God gives. Reflect what God gives. See, Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as Christ forgave you. And and then it says in Ephesians 5.1, walk in love as Christ loved us. Walk in love as Christ loved us. See, Christ looked at you and what he sees through the washing and the cleansing of his blood, he sees the best in you. He sees a glorious future picture of you sanctified and glorified in his image. And his promise is, I'm going to commit myself through my spirit to make you more and more like that image every day. You see, when we take that love, we don't deserve it. He could have looked at the 10,000 spots on us that were going in an entirely different direction. But he looked at his grace in us and said, I'm going to commit to taking you toward what is best in you. What is myself, my image in you? That's love. That's love. It's First uh, Corinthians 13 says it's hoping all things, believing all things. And then it says love does not envy or boast. It doesn't try to be better. It tries to build up, right? And so the goal here, reflecting what God gives is receiving. First, remember, you got to crave what Christ has. You got to look to him and behold him, receive daily his love. But then out of that, love others with the same love with which he loves you. Love others. And what this looks like, commit. Instead of being competition to them, be Christ to them. Instead of trying to beat them out, be Christ to them and seek to build them up. Here's the thing. Even after all of this, you know, thankful writing, And even after all of this, you know, meeting with God, which all this is good, right? We're still going to envy. Like, we're still going to have time to do this. But here's the thing. It's all about how we respond. It's all about how we respond. Because you could respond with either avoidance, like we said. I'm just not going to be around them because they stir up envy in me. 
Not an option if they're a brother or sister in Christ. It's just not an option. It's not avoidance, or you could accept it. And the way we accept is we say, well, I do have some bitterness against that person, but like I'm serving at mercy. You know, I do have a lot of jealousy against that person, but I'm a community group leader. I've got this thing within me of sin, but I'm going to go do this over here to cover it up. And that's not the gospel. We don't cover our sin through righteous works. We cover our sin through the blood of Christ. You see, if you have envy against someone, avoidance and acceptance aren't an option. There's really three, three things you can do. You, you can either confess. And I'd say, go that route. That's always a good option. Go to God and confess your sin. And here's the hard part. Here's the really hard part. Go to the person you're envying and confess. Well, what if they take advantage of me? What if they think less of you? You have heaven and earth and eternity and you're worried about people liking you. Remember? It doesn't matter if they take advantage of you. Christ was taken advantage of. He was brought to the cross. He was humbled to the point of death. If they take advantage of you, then you can find satisfaction in the refreshment that comes from healing and confession. Come to them and just confess. But I guarantee if they love Jesus, If they have a humble heart, it won't make them look down upon you. It'll unite you in love. Confess your sin. Do that hard thing that you're thinking, oh, I know who that is, and I can't talk to them about it. That means probably you need to talk to them about it, right? Confess your sin. Now, the second is encourage. The second is encourage. Instead of feeling envious about the good that you see in them, why don't you take the opportunity to tell them that that trait, that fruit is displayed in their hearts? You might think, oh, well, there's probably a thousand people who are telling them. How many people are telling you about the areas that you're gifted in, right? How badly do you need encouragement in Christ? Well, they need the same, and you need to be that person. If you notice it, then you need to say it. Tell them how you see the fruit of Christ in it. If it tends toward Christ-likeness, then you need to encourage them in Christ. And, and then just imitate them, right? If, if you find their prayer life to be better than yours, why would you waste time envying? Ask them how they got to such a place by the grace of God, and then say, can I pray with you? If we crave what Christ has, then we'll want what he has for us, even if, especially if we see it in another believer. We don't care where it came from. If they made us deeper in Christ-likeness and deeper in prayer, well, praise God, I'll take it. Yeah. Right, so you can confess, you encourage, but pray. Remember uh, 1 Corinthians 13, it says that it hopes all things. When you pray for those whom you're tempted to envy, you're practicing the hope. that You're practicing the hope that's in love. You're hoping, I want them to have good. I want them to have blessing. I want them to grow in Christ. See, this is the path of refreshment. This is the path of refreshment. You see, that Facebook experiment, it worked so well because every time we logged on, it gave us a sense of, I'm wanted, but I want more. I'm wanted, but I want more. You see, the real cure to your envy is found in Christ because in Christ, we find that we're wanted. He came after us and he looked at us even though we were envied. and he said, I want you for the glory of the Father. I want to bring you into the kingdom. He sought after us. 
And that craving that we have of wanting more when we see the best in people, it's all leading to the one who made them. And when we know him, both that satisfaction of fullness of life, it can't get more full than full. The fullness of life and being known and wanted by Christ is satisfied. This is the path of refreshment. You see, this cure for envy, it's not about a a change in place, changing places with someone else. It's about a change in posture, and it's a posture that Christ can give you now. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and I pray that even as you are stirring up by your spirit, resolves for good in your people who are hearing I pray 2 Thessalonians 1 that God, you would fulfill every resolve for good, every work of faith by your power. God, the steps of obedience that you called your people to, I pray that you'd fulfill that. You wouldn't let the enemy sow distraction or division or questioning a step of obedience. God, I pray that they would bear fruit in keeping with repentance and experience what Proverbs says, the healing to their bones, the refreshment to their bodies that comes through not seeking what others have, but seeking all that you have for them, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.